Paracast with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Bietley. So riddle me this. We have this civilization that's thousands or millions of years ahead of us, and yet their quality control of their aircraft, their spacecraft, is so bad that they are constantly crashing on our planet. From 1897 on, how many crash retrieval episodes have there been? Well, Ryan Wood's book documents, not directly documents, but brings up about 70 of them. Okay, with all those cases, you have to wonder, now, what's happening? (laughs) With these aliens, are they using the lowest bidder to build their spacecraft like we do? Well, let's look at a bigger question in that if there are this many incidents of crashes, that begs the question, how many visitations are really going on? We could probably take, Gene, the the statistics of the number of airplane crashes versus the number of flights. One of the things that's always boggled my mind is how many airplanes, for example, are flying over the continental United States at any given moment. It's in the thousands, the number. That's every day. So when you hear about an airplane crash, it turns out, I mean, realistically, that is such a small percentage of the overall number of flights. If we have 70-some-odd crashes, well, my God, man, how many visitations has the Earth undergone to generate that percentage of crashes? And I would hope that the quality control of the spacecraft is better than our quality control. There's an interesting aspect of this, which is that... Do they use undocumented alien workers? Well, but no, but maybe what they use are entities that are not fully um, autonomous. Maybe what these creatures in these vessels are to some large degree are engineered entities, engineered creatures that essentially are designed for this specific task. And when presented with elements of surprise, when presented with situations that are not in their programming, they simply fail. I'll tell you what, their computers are also made by the lowest bidder. Listen, coming up on the Paracast, we hear from Ryan Wood, and he's also going to talk about the fourth crash retrieval conference coming up in November. You'll hear more on the Paracast. Not in Kansas anymore. She came to Earth to conquer our planet. He traveled to the future to conquer her heart. Experience the adventure of a lifetime. Attack, Attack of the, the Rockoids. The critics are raving about Attack of the Rockoids. One reviewer writes, The father and son writing team of Gene and Grayson Steinberg have written a marvelous, fast-paced story of interstellar warfare and star-crossed love. The battle scenes are so descriptive, you can see the spaceships explode and be consumed by gigantic balls of flame. I enjoyed this story and the authors say there is more to come about the characters and the future world of the Rockoids. Fans of Star Wars and Star Trek will enjoy this story and look forward to many more adventures of Ray and Xanther. That's Attack of the Rockoids. Order your copy direct from Amazon Books or check out a sample chapter and get a special discount on your copy direct from www.rockoids.com That's www.rockoids.com Attack of the Rockoids in the grand science fiction tradition. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast.
So, Ryan, what do you think are some of the most compelling crash retrieval cases in UFO history? Well, I would have to go with the big ones. Um, you know, certainly Roswell, a lot of investigators over a long period of time, uh, lots of witnesses, lots of documents and evidence. And so that's very high on the list, as you might expect. Um, but also Kecksburg, uh, where you, again, have uh, good investigation, lots of witnesses, firsthand witnesses, some physical evidence. Uh, also, uh, one from history, uh, Aurora, Texas, uh, 1897, where you have a, a great investigator in the form of Jim Mars, as well as some physical evidence of pieces that were found uh, expelled from the craft that have been analyzed by John Schuster, the international director of MUFON, and others. Things like um, the Braxton County Monster um, in 1952, where Frank Faschino has written a whole book about that uh, event. Generally, the ones who are the most credible have, have had long histories, lots of research, lots of dedicated people putting the time and effort into them, and uh, have written extensively and survived the critics and the problems and the anachronisms that people raise. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. Our guest, Ryan Wood, he's author of Magic Eyes Only. And he's also conference chairman, among other things, of the fourth annual UFO Crash Retrieval Conference, which is happening in November in Las Vegas. And right now, I'll be there. And unless things change, unless I get captured or abducted before then, which, of course, can always happen in this crazy world of ours. But we're talking right now about some of the things he talks about in this book called Magic Eyes Only. Of course, I'm so excited about the book that my entire desk is dropping. The subtitle of the book is Earth's Encounters with Extraterrestrial Technology. Now, among all the so-called crash retrieval cases, do you find any that are simply not credible stuff that doesn't really pass the test of time? Well, that's a great question, and the answer is Yes, uh, and those are the ones that I didn't put in the book, but I should have uh, at least put a footnote in the back with a short explanation. I'll probably do that for the second edition. Most of them were prosaic explanations, uh, a meteor crash in somebody's front lawn. They wrote the FBI. They wrote the White House. Uh, they described what it was, and some people had said it was a UFO crash, and, and any reasonable person looking at it would say, no, no, it's a it's the meteor uh, or something obvious. Lots of the cases in the book, some 74 cases are reviewed, are under-investigated, first of all, but also they're sort of in a neutral category. They're 50-50 chance they could be real or fake, and you have to do work to push the needle of authenticity, so to speak, towards reality or towards a, a hoax or a fake. And a lot of them are just in the neutral uh, position. There's a kernel of something interesting, incredible, a witness, a document, um, an event, something you can't dismiss as a prosaic explanation of it's a meteor or a weather balloon or something like that, and that it really was a crash. And then from there, you begin investigating, and that's... Uh, 
the sort of sad thing that I discovered in doing this book, Magic Eyes Only, which you can buy on Amazon or you can get on my website, majiceyesonly.com, is that there weren't that many investigators out there working on these crashes. So that was sort of my revelation in, in part about writing the book. Ryan, a lot of these stories that we hear about um, are about episodes that reportedly took place many years ago. The Aurora episode was back in the 1890s. Uh, are there any situations or episodes in more recent times that you feel are credible that you've come across? When you say credible, that's uh, everything in the book, in my mind, is a credible starting point. Sure, and the, sure. the last... Uh, entry in the book is the uh, Isle of Lewis, uh, Scotland in October of 96. Also, uh, Eastern Somaliland in, in January of 1996. Uh, that one, the Somaliland uh, is very interesting in that this comes from an official moon dust document released from the State Department. And so there's no debate about the core events as they happened that something came down, it crashed, the uh, president of Somaliland at the time contacted the State Department and said, I need help, send some people out, and they came out and picked it up, but also observed severe problems within the population and the animals, uh, problems like dementia, um, skin shedding, vomiting, illness, a variety of things that persisted for weeks in and around the area of the event. And although it could be radiation poisoning and things like that, there was no mention of radiation detection and so forth. So it's fascinating to, to see a very high-quality kernel of information like that with some unusual attributes that, you know, doesn't go anywhere uh, because nobody really investigates it. But then again, uh, you know, running off to Africa is not one of my favorite ideas. Mm -hmm. Earlier in the year, we had on a Dr. Roger Lear, a medical professional who has uh, gained some notoriety for investigating cases where people will supposedly have implants on them. Now, he, when he was on our, when he was on our show, made reference to a crash episode that happened in recent years in Brazil. I don't remember exactly what city he said this happened in, but apparently he had gone down there and had a lot of reason to believe that the Brazilian military was involved in retrieving this craft and supposedly some occupants. Um, I suppose then what we can get from this is that more governments than just ours might have access or possession of some of these craft. Is that right? Yes, I think that's very true. He, uh, Lear was referring to uh, the Virginia case in Brazil in January mm -hmm. of 1996. And he's, uh, Roger Lear and A.J. Gravard are the two sort of primary investigators. I'm sure there's more in Brazil that contributed the uh, the chapter in my book. Um, okay. You know, I'm not the expert in, in all these various crashes, and uh, on the ones that I felt were really important, I definitely ran them by uh, the people that were the primary investigators and made sure they were completely happy and supportive of the uh, content. But that's another recent case and, and very interesting. Also, uh, at the last crash conference uh, last year in Las Vegas, Dr. Lear gave a talk on unusual metallurgical parts. Um, mm -hmm. And he brought a sample of uh, 
apart from a crashed UFO, allegedly, I believe, a Roswell uh, crash or one of the two crashes in Roswell, and had it analyzed and talked about it for, um, you know, his hour-long lecture and what sort of analysis was done and what the process was done with it. And that was very interesting. And people need to realize or walk away with is it's more than just stories of crashes. In five or six cases, we have physical evidence in the form of pieces of wreckage, very different than implants in humans, but pieces of wreckage, um, some with very good provenance and unusual anomalies, um, and something that would be more extraterrestrial than, than not, and others that are more... Um, casual or less compelling. Are there specific similarities in terms of the composition of, the, of these materials? Are there things that connect them in any way? No, actually all of them seem to be different. Um, the most exotic one is uh, Linda Howe's uh, layered bismuth magnesium part. Uh, every 15 angstroms or so, the the part oscillates from bismuth to magnesium. Very difficult, uh, you know, impossible for modern manufacturing techniques uh, to accomplish. And she's had it analyzed by all sorts of various labs to a more common sort of material, uh, aluminum and a little bit of uh, silica that Chuck Wade dug up out of the desert uh, at the plains of St. Augustine crash, uh, allegedly. So, you know, you get the extremes, and then Lear's part is also unusual. I can't remember the, the composition. But that's another book, potentially, or another whole investigation angle to just focus on physical evidence. Entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. to interrupt for a second and tell our listeners you're on the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. If you have a comment or a question, send your letters to news at theparacast.com visit our website theparacast.com and check out our wild woolly action pack message forums. We're talking to Ryan Wood. He is conference chairman of the fourth UFO crash retrieval conference coming in November in Las Vegas. We'll talk about that more a little bit later in the show. He's also author of a book called Magic Eyes Only, subtitled Earth's Encounters with Extraterrestrial Technology. It's available from Amazon Books, of course. And the key element of the book is the coverage of crash retrieval stories. Now, obviously, this wouldn't apply to Aurora, Texas, for example. But in the case of recent so-called crash retrievals, do we see a possibility that some of them were actually just secret weapons of some sort? I don't have any evidence to support that they were just secret weapons. Um, and I'm looking forward to one of the talks that's coming up at the crash retrieval conference. You can get the details at ufoconference.com by uh, Peter Merlin, uh, who's a, a 
basically a, an archaeologist, an airplane archaeologist, airplane crash archaeologist, and he's been to scores of airplane crashes, including stealth fighter crashes and other top secret crashes. And he's going to talk about what you expect when you have a, a crash of a military aircraft. And, and I'm personally fascinated to hear what he says and, and try to compare and contrast, in my mind, the case histories that are in the book um, with some of the other crashes that he's going to talk about, of, of stealth fighters and other, other aircraft. But there's nothing obvious that I can say is that's just a, a special crashed military uh, weapon. Most of the time you get documents or witnesses that see the shape or erratic movement, um, something to indicate that it is not uh, one of our own uh, super secret weapons. Mm. Well, that, of course, that raises one thing. What about going back to Aurora, Texas? Now, I've heard claims over the years that this is really just a hoax that was designed to get people to come to a city that would otherwise be, well, kind of obscure, a place that was very obscure. What's your reaction to that? Well, I, I think uh, it's a little naive once you start looking at the data. Okay. Uh, and at first blush, it's an easy way of... Uh, explaining it uh, away, but after you look at the the witness testimony and the numerous newspaper articles, not just in one newspaper, but many other ones, and the, the gnarled hands of the, uh, the owner of the property from handling the wreckage and the, the entire hoopla associated with the burying a dead alien in the cemetery and then having the headstone disappear and dug up and, and police involved. You know, I, and Jim Mars uh, is sort of the lead investigator on this particular crash. If it was just a hoax, they, you know, they wouldn't, wouldn't have so much follow-up and it wouldn't be so persistent. You know, it's got actually a state, uh, Texas state historical marker erected there talking about the uh, the alleged crash. Hmm. But uh, I find it interesting in that, uh, you know, there's parts of wreckage that have been analyzed and are were unusually pure materials for the time. And I think there's, there's probably more wreckage and material to be discovered or analyzed down there. And I think that even the parts that John Schuessler has from the uh, crash site could be put through another battery of metallurgical tests to show some um, something either that we can make it here today or it's easily manufacturable. So, of course, you know, if we could find an alien, well, that's that's the holy grail, or or a hatch cover, or some hieroglyphics, or some other parts, and that's another talk that I'm giving uh, at the crash conference. I'm I've been secretly working on a totally new crash retrieval that isn't even in the literature that I discovered as the process of doing this book, and have been out to the site a couple of times. I'm going out again. I'm cautiously optimistic that uh, I will have more than a, just a good story, but it will hold parts in my hand and say, hey, I dug it up out of this site. This is the context. And um, we'll start down the path of trying to analyze it and show that it was extraterrestrial if, if there's not uh, unusual hieroglyphic markings on it, you know, which would still be problematic, but you got to start somewhere. Hmm. We know, guys, I actually recently watched that History Channel special 
on the Aurora, Texas episode. And there were a couple of things I found really fascinating about it. That farmer who owns the property, who supposedly handled some of these materials, they had photos of his hands. And, I mean, he looked like he had been through Chernobyl. His hands were grossly, mis you know, they were just grossly distorted. They looked like they had really undergone a very severe form of radiation poisoning and mutation. It was really stunning and kind of sickening to see what had happened. Yeah. The other thing, I mean, just, just horrific stuff. You look at this and... Um, you know, the commentator says something about him having arthritis, and I, I looked at his hands and thought, I've never seen arthritis that looked vaguely like that. That it really looked like some kind of a terrible case of radiation poisoning. The other thing I found fascinating was that he had basically cemented over that well. That well now had an eight-foot, I think, thick block of concrete on top of it, where supposedly they had dumped remnants of um, of the metal from the crash, and you know, at the end of the show, they have this one lead investigator on the program. It wasn't Mars; it was someone else. And he was standing in front of this fence, saying, "You know, if only we could get over there and get into that well." And I thought, "My God, man, why don't you have a Geiger counter on you? If you have a Geiger counter, you probably get a reading. If indeed there was something down in that well, I, it, I, I felt very frustrated. I wanted to reach for the TV and grab the guy and say, "Get a Geiger counter." Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's one 800 728 2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. This is the Paracast with your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. And if you want to reach us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. Visit our website, theparacast.com. Download older episodes of the show, the ones that you've missed. Our guest today is Ryan Wood. He's author of Magic Eyes Only, subtitled Earth's Encounters with Extraterrestrial Technology. We'll have a link at the Paracast.com website taking you directly to the book site, okay? He's also the conference chairman of the fourth UFO Crash Retrieval Conference, which is going to feature a lot of our friends on the show, of course. George Knapp, the guy from the Channel 8i team in Las Vegas, who was on our show talking about Skinwalker Ranch. He'll be the, I guess you call him the keynote banquet speaker. So if you attend the banquet yeah. at the conference, he'll be there. Stanton Friedman, also a regular on our show. Tell us in the next few minutes a little bit about the conference and where one can get more information and maybe attend. It's in Las Vegas, November 10th through 12th uh, at the Tuscany Suites and Casino. It's a very nice uh, hotel. $99 a night for rooms and the conference is $169. But what you get for that is 13 speakers in a two and a half day uh, 
action-packed lecture and Q&A session. And it starts on Friday night, uh, the 10th, uh, with a couple talks. Dan Friedman's leading it off, and then uh, Dr. Michael Sala, who's done a lot of work in exopolitics and is actually talking about uh, the covert world of crash retrievals. On Saturday, there's a whole uh, series of, of lectures. Uh, Rich Dolan has his new He's finishing up his new book uh, on UFOs and the national security state, and give us a preview of that. Michael Lindemann is going to be talking about scenarios of contact, imagining the societal reaction to confirmed arrival of non-human intelligence. That's going to be very interesting. My father is going to be talking about alien viruses and leaked documents, and part of his new book that he's working on, In Search of Alien Viruses, Crash UFOs and MJ-12 and Biowarfare. Mm. Nick Redfern has also been helping him with that and uh, is going to be talking about his work there with um, with that as well. Uh, Linda Howe, uh, a great name, has got several more first-hand witnesses that she'll be presenting about crashes and the Majestic 12 documents, so I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Matthew Suni is talking about a crash, a watery Roswell, so to speak, um, in northwest Washington, up in Puget Sound in 1984. Another big coup in my mind is Paul Shatskin is talking about T. Townsend Brown um, doing a biography, or he's completed his biography of T. Townsend Brown, who, for those that aren't very familiar, was one of the first people to demonstrate an anti-gravity type device and his linkages to the UFO field and unusual history. One side note, by the way, about Townsend Brown, he was one of the original founders of NICAP, which was the organization in Washington, D.C. that Major Donald Kehoe eventually came to lead. Very good point. Yes. Yes. Uh, Bruce McAbee, um, getting him uh, to come out and talk about the El Indio Guerrero crash in 1950. And I th- still think that case is, uh, although it's got some documents and so forth, could be further investigated, aerial photography, some um, on-the-ground searching, uh, historical analysis. Uh, there's You could still find hardware at that site, uh, and I think that that's possible. Frank Faschino is coming to talk all about the Braxton County Monster, um, and that's going to be uh, very interesting and fun as well. I haven't heard him talk about it and don't know that much about that particular crash case. So, And then I'm talking about my new crash retrieval uh, as well. So that's sort of the, the lineup. Uh, I mentioned Peter Merlin, and, and we mentioned George Knapp before. Okay. How does one get information about this? Because I realize time is short. Yeah, you can just log on online to ufoconference.com uh, and you can sign up on the hotel, do it online. You can call me directly at 720-887-8171 and talk to me and I'll help you. Uh, the number again, 720-887-8171. And this is the fourth UFO crash retrieval conference coming early November in Las Vegas. Now let's look at a couple of things. David mentioned a very important point here, which is the radiation factor. And how much investigation has there been done into the increase or potential increase in radiation around these so-called crash areas? It's not very clear. Uh, There's 
in a couple of cases, there was mentions of people taking Geiger counters, but they didn't find much. Um, I would have to ask John Schuster about radiation at the uh, on his sample from Aurora, Texas, and or Jim Mars. But I think this is a good thing to do. Um, I think there's been increased background levels of radiation on several of the landing uh, trace cases that uh, Ted Phillips has worked with. There seems to be some radiation increase, but it isn't overwhelming and highly radioactive or dangerous to my knowledge. Except for that guy's fingers, of course. Yeah, well, he may be from, uh, you know, drinking the well water or... Uh, it may have been much more radioactive at the time. It has decayed a lot uh, in the past 100 and some odd years. But, yeah, the cysts on uh, Brawley Oates' hands were uh, very disfiguring and ugly. And, and oh, I have a picture of that in, in my book, uh, Magic Eyes Only. Mm. In fact, while you're talking, let me open up the book. While David asks you a question, I'm going to go page through the book right now. By the way, it's a very well done book, by the way. The illustrations are very nicely laid out. You have a section with this very slick paper. And the reason I talk about this is sometimes I realize that a lot of people do put out their own books. But whether you put out the book yourself or you have someone publish it for you, the best thing to do is to have a good presentation. Make sure the book is well laid out, well design, has the proper illustrations, everything is clean and clear, so that way you could evaluate the information in a more responsible fashion. David, you're about to say. Well, at that point, of course, the book ends up getting taken more seriously, and uh, that's a, an important topic. And Ryan, that brings us to a, a meta, meta question I want to ask you. Okay, um, we're in trouble now. Well, you know, in looking through the documentation and reading the books, I've been doing a bunch of reading, Ryan, on MajesticDocuments.com. Things like the June Crane notes, the transcripts from June Crane, are incredibly compelling. There's every reason to believe that this woman handled materials, was in the know in terms of actually being able to say, yes, I saw these documents. At this point, it's my belief that there's enough hard evidence, really, to state unequivocally that there have been crashes. So here's the question, and it's going to be a tough one for you to answer. What do you think it's going to take for our society in general to pay attention to this topic, given how much it's been marginalized, given how anybody who is in the position to want to discuss it is ridiculed openly? Do you think that certainly, and I'll talk about the United States at the moment because I don't want to make this a global statement, but in this country it would seem that our government is able to do such really horrific things pretty much right out in the open on many levels, and people just don't seem to care. So the question is, if you present the public with hard, hard evidence, and again, I believe at this point there is enough evidence there to make this case unequivocally. What is it going to take for people to stop and say, hey, this has relevance to my life? Right. Well, it's a, it's a very great question, and, um, and I've started a, a little book um, called Who Cares About UFOs? You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next.
you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, contact us, news at theparacast.com. Visit our website, theparacast.com, and download previous episodes of the show or visit our wild and woolly message forums. And by the way, Ryan, you're invited to participate in our message forums. Sometimes it gets a little raunchy over there, but we know from talking to you right now that you will be able to contribute and answer the questions. Ryan Wood is our guest. He's the conference chairperson for the fourth Crash Retrieval Conference happening in November in Las Vegas. He's author of a book called Magic Eyes Only, subtitled Earth's Encounters with Extraterrestrial Technology. Go to Amazon Books to get more information. By the way, I was looking at the photograph of Brawley Oates showing these cuts, these cysts from drinking tainted well water at Aurora, Texas. It's on page 28 of the book. And boy, those fingers really look bad. This is not yeah. arthritis. This is really something that shows some kind of infection, deep infection. Yeah, I mean, when you have uh, knots on your hands that are clearly the size of two or three fingers, you know something's wrong. Well, let's talk about the question that David raised, which, of course, is to certainly get more traction for this entire subject. Yeah, I mean, the question of who cares and then what's it going to take. Um, my little book idea that I had about who cares was to... Uh, symbol uh, famous quotes from all sorts of people, politicians across the world, etc., um, and scientists, and put them in context so that somebody could read a thin little book in an hour and hear a bunch of very learned people ask probing uh, or make probing statements about the nature of UFOs and, and provide some context for why people might care or should care more about it. But the tougher thing as you set up was what's it going to take to get people to engage mm -hmm. um, and there's two answers in my mind it's the public and the media and the politicians really three three answers the public is sort of there already within reason the media don't want to deal with it uh, because it isn't compelling enough and the politicians don't want to deal with it because there's there's other pressing matters to deal with it, and it isn't really compelling enough. So my approach for the book has been to present the hardcore evidence for crashes and keep dragging the government and the media and the public through the data, through the evidence, not only of crashes, but ultimately of hardware. And that physical evidence should move them off the dime a little bit. But ultimately, what's really going to make a difference is if you can gain an economic advantage. If you can find pieces of crashed hardware, get patents on them, create technologies and products, reverse engineer them in a private way, not through the government's way, and make a million, a billion dollars at it, then you can plow it back into further exposure and you'll gain some credibility because, you know, if this is all real, how come you aren't rich uh, is such a whimsical and common response of the media, either off camera, or certainly off camera. And you'll get a lot more respect if, you, if we can 
make it a viable uh, economic uh, engine. A yes, but here, if there is this military-industrial complex, the government, whatever, wants to keep this information a secret, wouldn't they already have this stuff there? They already have this information. They're keeping it a secret already, if we believe what Lieutenant Colonel Philip Corso said in the day after Roswell. They already had the information. They already had the evidence of the alien technology, and some of it was doled out to private industry. Clandestinely. Yeah, I, uh, I certainly agree that that's uh, that's true, likely, and ongoing. Um, but to give you an example, Linda Howe's bismuth magnesium layered part from a crash saucer. You look on the web and you look at the patents, and there are no patents on layered bismuth magnesium parts. There are no manufacturers that can do it. They don't understand the properties of it. Uh, this is part of the challenge. Do we have any PhDs in metallurgy that uh, did their PhD thesis on layered bismuth magnesium materials? The answer is no. Well, wouldn't that stuff be kept secret anyway? Wouldn't there be a black project somewhere? Would there even be a patent that would be available in anywhere except for Aruba or something that would show evidence of such a device? They wouldn't dare release that if they there is a conspiracy to hide this information. Well, that, that's certainly true, and then it's available into the black exotic world of uh, super secret aircraft and and so forth. And I, I think that's there are many technologies or inventions that have occurred, and they're totally hidden and totally classified. But the great crime with that approach is that they have a hundred, a thousand cloistered scientists uh, working hard. Maybe not the brightest scientists either because security is more important than your brilliance. And the crime is that a million or 5 million or 10 million scientists and engineers from across the globe don't get a chance to look at an alien cadaver and begin to understand the uh, fundamental natures of biology. And that's the, uh, that's the great crime. Indeed. Of course, one also at that point has to wonder, Given that it would appear that the military has kept this under wraps for so long, you know, the argument that, well, we can't release this information to the public, the public can't cope with it, I, I wonder if that holds water anymore. Certainly back in the late 1940s after World War II, I can almost see the justification for the government saying we need to keep the Roswell situation under wraps. Our people are not ready for it. but. In 2006, given the media indoctrination to the idea of accepting this notion of life outside of the Earth as perhaps even a common thing, I don't know that that argument would really hold water anymore. Then there's the discussion of, well, we can't let our enemies see our technological advantage, which you can sort of see the rationale behind. But, Ryan, what do you think at this point motivates the military or the secret part of the military that's sitting on this to keep this continually under covers? What is their agenda? Well, their agenda is a separate thing, I think, but... Uh, the challenge with telling I me, mean, everybody can handle the fact that we're not alone. Uh, you hope so, right? Yeah. yeah, and I think that the reaction, you know, even the Catholic Church is uh, in touch with that, and and uh, Islam, etc. Uh, the fundamentalist Christians probably would have the most heartburn. Uh, is it the devil or is it God? <laughs> but. Uh, <laughs> That's just the tip of the iceberg. Then they would say, well, how do you know? Well, you know, 
well, we we had a crash. We we got a couple of parts and bodies. Well, can we see them? And how did you cover it up this long? Um, and and so it begins to unravel. It, it's really the secret. I think is not so much the alien secret, but the mm. apparatus that maintains and controls the secrecy. Is that if you were able to successfully, in quotes hide the truth about the ET presence and our crashed hardware alien bodies, etc., for 60-some-odd years or longer through unprecedented government secrecy. What else are you hiding? And isn't this unconstitutional, un-American, undemocratic, in violation of the Bill of Rights, on and on and on? And it would throw potentially uh, a lot of people into a tizzy about it. And in the Majestic documents, they talk about the, you know, six or seven key reasons why to keep it secret at the time. Public trust of our political institutions may be eroded and possibly held in disrepute. Well, they're pretty much in trouble right now. There is no public trust of our institutions. This is Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO, reporting for ConspiracyJournal.com. Fascinated by the strange and unknown, things that go bump in the night, UFOs, time travel, Area 51, the Philadelphia Experiment, shady government cover-ups? Don't be left out in the lunar cold. Sign up now for our weekly online newsletter and receive our snail mail catalogs. Go to ConspiracyJournal.com or email Tim Beckley at MrUFO at WebTV.com. It's all out of this world. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. Before we go in the wrong institution, I have to tell our listeners, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. Contact us. Send your messages to news at theparacast.com, news at theparacast.com, and go to theparacast.com, download old episodes of the show, or participate in our wild, woolly, and exciting message forums. We're talking to Ryan Wood, conference chairperson of the fourth UFO crash retrieval conference, coming in Las Vegas in November, go to ufoconference.com to get more information and to make your reservation while you still can. He's also author of a book called Magic Eyes Only, Earth's Encounters with Extraterrestrial Technology. And we're talking with a lot about the things that are happening in the UFO field about crashes and retrievals. One of the things that David and I have run up against since we've been doing the show since February is the contradictory claims in this field. There are so many statements presented as fact, just trying to figure out what's real, what isn't. Forget about what the government is doing. Okay, nobody believes the government anymore anyway, but forget about that. Look at the UFO field. And the more we explore it, the more we wonder what kind of mess we have here. So many contradictory claims, so much in the way of flame wars among different people. It becomes very, very difficult to navigate this morass of confusion. Yeah, it does. And it's a complicated field to begin with um, because it touches so many different aspects of uh, of science 
science and sociology and, and medicine and so forth. So it's a complicated project to begin with, and you have injections of personalities and problems and, and maybe disinformation on the part of the government. But I, I frankly think the government is just sort of staying away from it all uh, and let them do in their own uh, quagmire because what they ultimately want to protect is the the parts and the bodies and the physical physical evidence and that's the most compelling part to uh, you know science and the media and so mm -hmm. forth but that's just our government, Ryan. Let's assume for a moment other governments have some of these crashed vehicles, maybe even bodies. Uh -huh. Is there any is there any possibility of seeing maybe a chink a, happen, a chink open up somewhere in someone's armor so that something can get through? I mean, if we talk yeah. about Brazil, I mean, I, I, I want to believe that there's some madman during Carnival when Brazil <laughs> says... All right, this is it. It's time to do it. But that brings me back to the same question as before. Let's say that all of a sudden, on this 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock evening news, this information is presented. Will it affect anyone? Will people go, wait a minute, we need to really look at this? I mean, what you said before is really telling to me that you feel that it will have a real effect when it's about economics. And that's, in many ways, that's a depressing thought. Oh, if we can make money from this then it's something we need to talk about. But if it, you know, ends up being, oh, I don't know, the most important announcement in the history of humanity about understanding our place in the universe, well, if there's not a few shekels to be made, ah, you know, put it on page six, put it on page seven. That's, it's, honestly, to me, that's a terribly depressing thought. Well, I mean, it all depends upon your perspective. From the newspaper and the media perspective, does it get eyeballs? Will it uh, effectively sell advertising? Is it a real news story? And they have to think of it like that, and they will, um, even though some altruistically think it's more than that. And it is more than that. It is a very important and watershed event for our planet. In my mind, uh, Earth Independence Day was the day we exploded an atomic bomb for the first time on the planet, and that moment was heard uh, throughout the universe, and the ETs came and visited and tried to study us more. And the next great watershed event is going to be when it's common knowledge that we're not alone in the universe and that there is overt, compelling proof, and everyone understands that we're either or a million years behind uh, the next advanced civilization. Or there were previous civilizations on our planet that destroyed themselves. That's another theory. Yes. Uh, I mean, effective proof of that, too, would be uh, very valuable as well. So it is sad that um, our society is, is driven on a business economic model, and its capitalism has seemed to have taken hold across the globe. China is now capitalistic and entrepreneurial, and Russia and so forth. The world is a capitalistic society, and it will continue to be capitalistic. So um, that is going to be the predominant scenario. And until, in my opinion, UFOs can become capitalistic, 
somehow. Well, uh, I guess if they can monetize the propulsion system. Oh yeah, yeah, that would be that would be huge uh, and very important. Um, and even if you had free energy, that would be a tremendous tool to change the way things work. They don't want free energy. Well, I know because it's the energy is the most taxed commodity on the planet. Uh, every the coffers of every government are massively enhanced by taxation on gasoline and crude oil and all the things that flow from those feedstocks, plastics, and on and on. So uh, it's, it's a very um, sticky wicket to deal with here. We have a few minutes left. David, I know you have a ton of questions. Well, I, I listen to this and I think to myself, if extraterrestrial be beings were benevolent, and let's assume they're intelligent. They would look at this situation and say, "These talking monkeys have no hope. Let's just let's just sit back and watch this because it'll be fun to watch what they do to each other." Um, if they're malevolent, then they have to look at this and say, "Well, given that this is like Ryan said, a capitalist world, let's just let them capitalize themselves into the ground, destroy the environment, destroy themselves, and then we'll just come in and sweep up what's left." Either way, honestly, guys, it's not. Uh, uh, it's hard to it's hard to be optimistic about this. I suppose, Ryan, from what you've studied in this field, what would you say to our listeners to give them some optimism about how this topic will be handled in the future? That's I'm putting you on the spot here. Yeah, that is a very tough question. How to be optimistic about this in the future? Um, yeah. And well, I think I'm optimistic about it for a couple of reasons. One is that I think that with information technology, we can continue to assemble a dominant information and intelligence base of UFO information uh, and, and detail that will, for the first time, bring forward all the context of UFOs and the thousands of books that have been written in journals, it will eventually come to the point where all knowledge about UFOs will be fully searchable on the web. All the books will be scanned, all the videos uh, indexed, it will all be there. And people will begin to cross-reference and analyze and find more witnesses and begin to chip away at the cover-up and expose the people that have committed the, the great crime. And that's, I'm optimistic about that. I am um, think there are multiple civilizations visiting in, with multiple agendas. Uh, it's unlikely that the ETs themselves will do anything to, you know, wake up planet Earth in any big way and that uh, right. we're just going to have to cope with becoming a, a more integrated and uh, non-warring world on our own with our own effort and nobody's going to come save our tail we're, we're going to have to do it on our own and and sharing information and knowledge is one of the ways and reducing or creating a common communication language for everybody it's miscommunication that causes so much problem in the world absolutely um, fear and miscommunication fear yeah very good yeah. point yeah hey let's before we let ryan would leave ryan would you tell folks number one how to get a copy of magic eyes only oh 
Oh, yeah. I mean, you can log into my website at majiceyesonly.com. Okay. Um, and I'll sign the copy and so forth. You can order it on Amazon.com, uh, and I can uh, get it off to you. The UFO Conference, November 10th through 12th, uh, the, all the details are on ufoconference.com. Uh, we have a great lineup. It's going to be a lot of fun. Registrations are really uh, zooming along, and uh, probably there's only like 20 or 30 rooms in the hotel left uh, right now. We had 160 rooms reserved. So I expect that we're going to do close to 400 people there at the conference, which will be a um, big increase from last year. And I'm excited about that. I'm also excited to learn about this crash retrieval case that you apparently have yeah. discovered. And maybe after the conference, if you have more information, we can talk to you and learn more about it yeah. if it passes muster. Thank you for joining us, Ryan Wood, on the Paracast. Thank you. We're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. So, David, my impression of Ryan Wood is that he seems more sensible and more grounded than a lot of the people we've talked to. He was a great guest. I really appreciate the fact that he's another one of these people who has done real research. He's really dug for things versus taking other people's testimony, other people's uh, information and regurgitating it. I'm fascinated by the fact that his book, this book he's talking about has 70 some odd crash episodes 70 did i get that right well that's what he says yes and the book is oh. and you'll have a copy of it before by the time this episode airs it's about 300 pages it's a very well presented professional looking book and the reason we keep emphasizing that is because we think it's so important that if you have a self-published book if you decide to bypass the publishers for whatever reason and this is not because of the, necessarily the quality of the book it may be because you feel that you'll have more control over the finished product that way you should spend the time the money the energy to make it look good because if a book doesn't look good doesn't read well then your chance of gaining a credibility among people especially skeptical people is almost impossible Mm -hmm. Yeah, form and function. I really look forward to reading that book. I'm still really curious about how there have been 70-some-odd crashes and not a single thing... Well, I shouldn't say not a single thing has ever gotten out because reportedly there's a piece of the Roswell crash in Roger Lear's hands. Reportedly there was a piece of metal from Aurora that underwent uh, uh, all sorts of analysis and came through with some very weird stuff associated with it. So there are these pieces. Look, I have a good reason to believe that there are legitimate crashes. Gene, as I know you do, uh, as I know you believe as well, I really keep coming back to this idea that people seem so absolutely distracted by their mortgages, by their by their children, by their car payments, by the state of politics, by the fact that they're eating antidepressants like they were popcorn, I really start to wonder if, if this stuff comes out, is anybody going to stop and go, oh my God, this is big stuff? Or will people literally just say, oh, what's on the next channel? I, I need a hamburger. What's on the next channel? I need a hamburger because it has all that wonderful high fat, all the cholesterol that I want to inhale so I can get my anti-cholesterol tablets and the drug companies yeah, can make right. tons and tons right. of money from all that stuff. 
given the opportunity for real evolution, will people take the step forward and put in the work to evolve to the next level, or are they so focused on their belly buttons that they will allow the truth to just go right by them? You know, people talk about the second coming of Jesus. If Jesus came back today, would anybody even notice Gene unless he had a big PR campaign? Well, that's it. Isn't the Catholic Church supposed to be heading the PR campaign, though? Yeah, great. They're doing a great... Yeah, they're doing a... Oh, you don't even want me to say this on the air, man. You don't want me to say it. We won't. Let's you just want, I, I bypass won't. that. We'll bypass that. And certainly, who believes anyone anyway? If the President of the United States today got up there and said, Ladies and gentlemen, I've been in touch with somebody from Zeta Reticuli, or whatever planetary system or another dimension... They'd say, oh, sure, and we're going to get out of Iraq tomorrow, and the war is going well, and the price of gas is going to go down, we'll have energy independence, and we'll have health care for everyone affordable. Sure. Now, what else can I watch on TV? Ah, yes, Grey's Anatomy, Desperate Housewives. Right. Meanwhile, if it was Bush, they'd say, well, there's definitive proof you fell off the wagon, as if we didn't have that proof anyway. Because <laughs> no one takes anything. This, I mean, that's the deal. Gee, is he hitting the snow again? I don't know. Is he skiing? I don't know. Is he drinking? Well, apparently he is. He's talking about aliens. Meanwhile, some of the junk that's come out of his mouth, I mean, did you know that we were in World War III? The president has said it. We are in World War III. So... At that point, the aliens come, the aliens go, they take a cow, they take a, a calf, they take a few people from New Jersey. Does anybody even care anymore? I wonder, Gene, maybe, just maybe, it's time to give the cockroaches a chance. Well, they're still here. The cockroaches haven't left. They'll be here after we're gone. Absolutely. So maybe it's time for them to evolve. And maybe really the future of this planet is more about a society based on a hive organization, like what the greys appear to be, versus individual homo sapiens with spiritual thoughts. Maybe... Maybe the big joke of the cosmos is that we are an, an abnormal mutation. Maybe really efficiency and technological progress is primarily the domain of the hive-based species, and perhaps humans ended up being this grand experiment which has been designed to entertain the universe. I hope somewhere in Orion right now, someone's laughing. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietti. You know, the way things are running in this country, within a few years, we may have no freedoms left. You have to wonder, at the current rate of the decimation of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, what's going to happen ten years from now? Where will this society be? It's hard to extrapolate, Gene, isn't it? Imagine, we think of UFO secrecy on this program as being a major issue, but that's barely the tip of the iceberg. Well, it seems like people don't really ask more of their current reality. If they have television, and if they have a warm meal, and if they have a working bathroom, it seems like they're content with that, Gene. It's, it's sad to see what people have settled for in our current society. Why don't they demand more truth from their government? Well, of course, the SUV, but now we can't afford that oh. because gas is too high. Oh, yeah. 
future historians will look back on this time and say, why did they sell out? For so little. I mean, all of these wondrous things around us, science at the point where we're able to understand so much more of the universe and the nature of reality than ever before, and it's like people can't be bothered. I personally do not understand this. I, I, it's hard for me to get my brain around, Gene. Well, I'll tell you what, we're going to explore not only UFOs and conspiracy theories, but just what's happening to our freedoms with our next guest, and that's Richard Dolan. He's also one of the hosts of this new Sci-Fi Investigates TV show. Yeah, I saw, um, I think it might have even been the premiere episode where they go to what's left of New Orleans to look for traces of the reality of voodoo. I didn't see the whole thing, but from the little bit I saw, looks like a good show. Actually, reading this guy's bio online, he sounds absolutely brilliant. We'll find out more coming up next on the Paracast. You are about to enter another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a sinister land of secret rites, passwords, initiations, and handshakes where the truth remains hidden and history is controlled by an elite group of mysterious men. Imagine, if you will, that I'm holding a book in my hands that explains this secret history and that the name of this book is Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Here is described centuries of dark dealing, lies, murder, mayhem, and cover-ups in the pursuit of unimaginable money and power. My name is Brad Steiger, and the stories you are about to read may have actually happened at the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. You never know what's going to happen next. Rich, I've been looking over some of the written content on your website, and it's interesting how you come at the whole UFO phenomenon, not completely from left field. You're really sort of approaching it from a logical point of view, and a lot of it is based on your interest in how government works. How did you get interested in UFOs? Is there a personal sighting in your past? That was a good question, Dave. I did not have any prior interest or sightings in UFOs as I was growing up or as a younger person. I did back into the UFO research field through, the, through my own academic field of history. I was working on a PhD in Cold War studies at the time at the University of Rochester, uh, basically circa 1950, Harry Truman and Soviets and so forth. And I remember this uh, quite well. It was in the early 1990s and I walked into a bookstore and saw a copy of, in fact, Timothy goods above top secret the worldwide mm -hmm. ufo cover-up and i'd never seen this book before i'd never heard of it although it had been out for quite a long time so i picked it up i thought oh cool ufos let's take a look at this and uh there was a lot of names and, and departments in there that i had recognized from my own research i mean a lot of air force history a lot of cia history a lot of names that i knew and in here was timothy good putting in uh documents that uh come from three star and, and four star u.s generals talking about the possibility that this is a real phenomenon, circa 1947-48. And that just hit me like a ton of bricks because I had spent years going 
going through academic literature. And, of course, you don't get anything like that in official historical circles. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, even if these guys were making a huge mistake, uh, if it turned out that UFOs were simply some kind of uh, mistake in identification or something else, why was this not in any history book I've ever read? I mean, is it not interesting if you go back to 1950 and some three-star general is talking about the possibility of aliens in the context of the Cold War, isn't that the most interesting thing? I mean, to me it is. And I thought, I want to look into this and I want to see just what was going on, approaching it as any standard historian should approach it, which means to say that you you uh, don't try to prove this issue one way or the other, what are UFOs, but rather I had a very simple objective at first, which was simply to find out, was this ever a topic of serious concern by our military? That was it. And if it was a topic of serious concern, why was it? I mean, what were the reasons that they might have taken it seriously? So these were the kinds of questions I approached the topic with. And needless to say, I very quickly found quite a few documents that were official documents that are not arguable, that seem to me to indicate very, very high levels of concern concerned about this, and, uh, and I just took it from there. So I, I became persuaded early on that this was a real historical phenomenon, remains one to this day, in fact, that people in very responsible positions have indeed taken very seriously. To me, if I'm able to make that argument, clearly that's enough work for a day, uh, rather than to go 10 steps ahead and, and talk about who is behind the UFOs, are they alien, are they not, whatever. Proving one point first, a very simple point, that this is in fact a serious topic. To me, that was that was quite enough to do. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. Richard Dolan, he's the author of UFOs in the National Security State, among other documents. He's also one of the investigators for that all-new sci-fi channel program called Sci-Fi Investigates. Wow. How'd you get that gig? Well, I had done a lot of uh, TV documentaries over the last few years. I, I estimating about 25 or 30 of those for like the History Channel and Sci-Fi Channel and BBC and others. The people at Sci-Fi knew who I was. And earlier this year, they were planning out this particular show where they would have a variety of investigators from different backgrounds looking into uh, allegedly paranormal types of events. So they wanted at least one weird guy. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so they, you know, they've, they've got like a skeptic. They've got a, a scientist who's also somewhat skeptical about most of these, and they have a crime scene investigator. But they wanted someone who had a, a background in investigating UFOs or related things. It's not that you came from Brooklyn like David and I did. Right. <laughs> I did, though. We're all from Brooklyn. Wow. That's, isn't that something? Well, you and I share the same birth year rich actually so we're both brooklyn boys born in 1962 cool I think man there's, there's some kind of a conspiracy going on right here at the moment i think so this do, is the do, brooklyn do, 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 do. the brooklyn conspiracy that they were serious yeah. about doing a real show right this is not just like entertainment well it, yeah it is it's it's entertainment a little bit i'm not going to to pretend it isn't i mean when i first talked with them i did think it would be like a kind of in search of sort of thing, you know, very kind of very serious minded. And and what it is 
it's sort of that. I mean, we actually do legitimate investigations of some of these things and come up with some interesting conclusions. But the show is also in the vein of a lot of these reality-type documentaries that are out there, like like Mythbusters or Ghost Hunters, uh, these types of shows, which, uh, like Mythbusters, is quite popular. Uh, I think along those lines, we try to have a show where the investigators themselves have an interaction with each other. Uh, we kind of bust on each other a bit. Uh, the skeptic, Rob Mariano, is, is very well known from having done on uh, the Survivor TV show, and he actually made his, his name in that. And Rob just comes across as a regular guy who, who's a skeptic on most of these things. Part of the interesting thing about the show, from my point of view, is the dynamic that Rob and I have, because I'm billed as the believer and he's billed as the skeptic. We have totally different personalities. We actually like each other very much, but we constantly get on each other's case during the shows. And I think that's the entertaining part. It's, it's a little bit of everything. And there have been some people who, um, uh, some of my friends were very excited about this, but other friends were really worried from my uh, whatever reputation I have mm-hmm. because I'm getting onto this sort of interesting but maybe a little bit goofy show, to which I, I say, well, you know, I don't think I have a reputation. I write about UFOs. And besides, that was a joke, but not a very good one. You write about UFOs. What kind of reputation can you truly have? You're in good company here. Right. But the other thing is, uh, look, it's TV. And if I have any reputation, I believe that it will rise or fall on the basis of what I write. To me, I look at the TV show as gravy. And if it gets my name out there, hey, I'm not going to complain about that either. All publicity is good publicity, basically. And I, I enjoyed the show. I mean, truthfully, I feel it's a good show. I'm proud that I worked on it. I had a lot of respect for the people who were involved in production. This was produced by NBC, which owns the Sci-Fi Channel. So right. there were some very high-quality people involved behind it and uh, I really came to develop some very good friendships and, and certainly got a lot of respect for the people who were involved in putting the show together. How many I episodes have you done so far? We've shot six and that's it. Plus uh, what's called a webisode. So there's actually an episode for the web only that's on the sci-fi.com website. Okay. And you can look at that. But there's six shows for TV. If the ratings are good then we will we'll shoot more episodes of this. It really all comes down to rating. If it's good, if sci-fi management says we like it, they'll do more. And if not, well, then it was a nice run anyway, and that'll be the end of it. That's show business. That's it, yeah. So you're approaching the UFO question, I guess, from the secrecy angle, the cover-up angle. And that's, of course, the focus of the book. But you also have this very fascinating article on your website called UFO Secrecy and the Death of the American Republic in two parts. And you've got part one up there. And I was looking for... It's all out there. Part two's out there, too. Oh, okay. If it's not on my website, let me go check on that. But I think I combined the two parts Ah, on the one article. So Okay, uh, Okay, Dell, this is something that we've been talking about from different angles ourselves, and probably we deal with a subject which is called by Ken Thomas, one of our regular guests, Mm. parapolitics. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Ken Thomas. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the podcast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene in data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com.
You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. Richard Dolan, he's the author of UFOs and the National Security State. He's one of the four investigators on the all-new Sci-Fi Investigates, which is on Wednesday evening on the Sci-Fi Channel. Reason enough to get your basic cable or satellite, whatever offers Sci-Fi Channel. I only wish it were done in high definition. <laughs> I thought that it was being shot in high definition. It probably is, but it's not available in high definition in most places that I've seen, but hopefully... Oh. Okay. Hopefully it will be available. Okay. This article raises a lot of red flags because we're looking at the UFO secrecy as just one example of right. the erosion of our freedoms. Exactly. And maybe you want to expand on that. If you go out into the Internet, you search out, there are lots of brilliant people who have been really looking at uh, things that have been going wrong with our society and our civilization. A lot of problems in America. There's no shortage of people who've had a lot of very excellent insight into this. I feel that one thing that most of them are missing is an appreciation of the UFO phenomenon. I mean, even intellectuals are trained to sort of dismiss this as a non-topic, as a silly topic, not worthy of investigation. In fact, the people who dismiss it really know nothing about the topic to begin with. Mm -hmm. They just make this assumption, and they're wrong about that assumption. This is a very serious topic, and I know for for a fact, I've spoken with some ultra-elite individuals myself who talk about this in very selective circles, and it's not a matter of belief for them, it's a matter of knowledge. But trying to convey this to the broader public is tough. What I tried to do is to sort of place the UFO cover-up in the broader context of American history and see how does it fit in. In other words, I guess I tried to redefine American history and reinterpret it with this in there. So as I see the UFO secrecies, I look at it as one of several knives in the back of the American Republic. When you look at a topic like UFOs, think about this for a minute. You have the likely uh, retrieval of exotic technology. I think that this is in fact the case, and I think this has happened from the beginning. And if that's so, the secrecy around that has been so intense that it required an end run around our standard constitutional government. From the 1950s onward, I think this has been the case, and with the amount of money involved. There are not billions, but trillions of missing dollars from the federal government. And I am convinced that some of this, a lot of this has probably gone into a deep black infrastructure for UFO technology. I don't have proof that this is the case, but it certainly looks like it to me when I I look at all the factors involved. A, the missing money. B, the fact that there are a number of highly credible sources now that are talking about super secret programs to reverse engineer alien technology. Where would funding for this have come from? And so I think that the lack of public control over this has been a subversion of our constitutional government. And again, it isn't the only one. Uh, The fact that America is basically this empire, you know, the dog that's impelled to piss on everyone's tree, that has also, I think, damaged uh, this traditional Republican form of government. Uh, Republics and empires don't mix well, as as I argued in that piece. But But the fact is that you've had a cover-up of an absolutely enormous magnitude now going for several generations has had a very corrosive effect, I think, on our political discourse. And so it's been a problem. I sometimes wonder, Rich, if the creation of this 
essentially completely secret infrastructure to deal with what I suspect were indeed recovered technologies since the 40s onwards. It's almost like the creation of that mechanism created a way for there to be all sorts of other hidden programs that essentially have siphoned a tremendous amount of money out of our economy and put it into things that not only does the public have no knowledge of, but apparently Congress doesn't really know much about it itself. I think that's a great point, Dave, and I think that that's probably so. In other words, the creation of a, of a secret UFO technology infrastructure has probably helped to trigger other secret infrastructure creations, in other words, serving as a model for other programs. Now, it could be a little bit of both. It could be that you know, the creation of a super secret UFO related program was itself modeled on other programs. Right. Um, and I mean, I don't really know. Certainly the Manhattan Project well, the Manhattan is, Pro exactly. yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a prototype of secrecy. And I assume that that precedes UFO secrecy. But nevertheless, I think that, I think Dave has a good point, which is that um, the UFO secrecy goes back early on. Absolutely. And I think as a kind of ultra beyond government type of secrecy in the sense that, think of it this way, when the National Security Agency was formed at the end of 1952, it was formed in total secrecy. No one in Congress knew about this, and they didn't know for a decade. And in the NSA uh, like bylaws that created it, NSA is uh, immune to U.S. law. It, it's not bound by standard U.S. laws. Now that's several years after the UFO, you know, phenomenon had been a subject of great secrecy. So it seems to me that the whole UFO topic is is beyond government and has been so from the beginning, beyond US law I should say. I now think that it's actually beyond government in the sense that I don't really think that formal government players have the ultimate control over this issue. Um, I've become convinced that it's really the hands of private contractors, defense contractors like uh, probably Lockheed, probably Boeing, Raytheon, and some of these others that I think have greater leverage and control over the technology than actually uh, four-star generals might. So but when President Eisenhower talked about the military-industrial complex and the dangers back in the 1950s, he was trying to tell us something. Yes, I've come to think that he was. It's a funny thing. I went through my own little journey and evolution of thought on this. When I started researching this a little over 10 years ago, I was very hesitant to draw too many conclusions like that, what you're saying, Gene. But in fact, I think Ike was talking about probably two things in this. I think, I think he was talking about the UFO cover-up, and I suspect he was also talking about the mutual assured destruction uh, policy that, that we had, because he had really lost control, effectively, for the last few years of his presidency of the U.S. nuclear retaliatory plan, and was, was shocked at the end of his presidency in 1960 when he actually finally got an audience with Strategic Air Command and find, found out what their plan was, which was to blow the Soviet Union to kingdom come, and, and, uh, and I think Eisenhower was very taken aback. So, but yes, I think, in other words, there is this kind of revelation that he got during his presidency that he really wasn't in control of the military. Now, the, the word on the street in the UFO uh, leak community <laughs> is, that, is that the actual control over the UFO technology formally left the White House 
sometime in the late 60s, early 70s, uh, around the time that Nixon became president. I don't know this for sure, but a few things do point to it. Uh, there is a statement that uh, we are told uh, that Lockheed's Skunk Works CEO, Kelly Johnson, told his successor over there, Ben Rich, which was that at around 1969, the, uh, the topic became internationalized and privatized and really left uh, formal control by the U.S. president. I think that that as is probably a true statement. Again, this is a he said, she said thing, but I, but we have this on the basis of what Ben Rich is said to have told his friend, uh, a man named William McDonald. And McDonald repeated this and wrote about this in an article a couple of years ago. And I think there are other reasons to, to see that private control is really the way. When you look at other aspects of government, uh, in the 1970s, it became really obvious that international money took control of the U.S. presidency. You look at the presidency of Jimmy Carter. Uh, now, I like a lot of things that Jimmy Carter did, and from a UFO researcher perspective, he was a really good president. He liberalized Freedom of Information Act laws, for example. But Jimmy Carter was placed into the White House by David Rockefeller and the Trilateral Commission. Um, Rockefeller's primary aide was Zbigniew Brzezinski, who Carter made his uh, national security advisor. Carter himself was an active trilateralist, appointed over 20 members of the Trilateral Commission to the White House uh, prominent staff. And so, and Jimmy Carter came out of nowhere and was essentially picked up by David Rockefeller and, and plunked into the White House. For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. If you want to get in touch with us, send your messages to news at thepowercast.com, news at thepowercast.com. And David has asked me not to call our message boards wild and woolly. So how about the words just, spirited? Okay, you just read my mind. That was That's a good one. Okay, okay yeah. well, spirited message spirited, boards are the spirit, power. Spirited and dynamic. Okay, spirited and dynamic. <laughs> and soon the S and D words will get tiresome too, but for now, go check out the forums at thepowercast.com. Richard Dolan joins us. He is one of the four hosts of Sci-Fi Investigates, an all-new show on the Sci-Fi Channel on Wednesday evenings. Check your local listings for the schedule. And he's also author of of a lot of works, including UFOs and the National Security State. He'll be at the fourth annual UFO Crash Retrieval Conference in Las Vegas, as will I, and we'll, we'll meet up there. But right now, we're talking about UFO secrecy. We're talking about plucking Jimmy Carter into the White House. Oh, now, right. was David Rockefeller also responsible for the 20% inflation? <laughs> no, probably not. What David Rockefeller did, though, the reason that, that I tie this in with the UFO problem is that 
Here's what happened with David Rockefeller and, uh, and Nixon and Ford. Rockefeller was very unhappy with a lot of Nixon's economic policies, it turns out. And to make a long story short, when Ford was president, Rockefeller... Uh, no, Nixon was still president, pardon me. Rockefeller actually walked into the office of Henry Kissinger, all right, who was Secretary of State, very powerful guy, right? Henry Kissinger with an ego the size of a mountain. And David Rockefeller walked in and informed Kissinger of the creation of this new trilateral commission, which was an international body uh, around the, the, the triangle of Europe, America, and Japan. Okay, that was going to help the Nixon administration with policy implementation and policy decisions. He just walks in and tells this to Kissinger. How many people in the world, other than David Rockefeller, could have even done that? And Kissinger just said, oh, um, okay, fine. <laughs> so what I'm saying is that this group, which was non-governmental, totally private, then essentially picks the new U.S. president. All right, that's saying something. So then, in other words, as you can you can really track the way that power that we have these our own kingmakers in our society, and that there's this private power behind the White House. It was also true with Reagan. It was also true with with Bush and with Clinton, and it is certainly true with the current president George W. Bush. That raises the other question too: Are these private power brokers manipulating the election results? I know we had the big controversy over the 2000 election, where in effect right. the Supreme Court elected our president. In 2004, there were lots and lots of complaints about so-called voting irregularities in Ohio, right. and changing things there would have changed the election in the favor of John Kerry. So right. what do you think? Well, I don't know if, if it's those power brokers who are manipulating the elections. I do believe that the elections are manipulated. Um, we do not have an auditable process. I mean, to this, to this day, it, it has not been implemented. So in other words, there's really no way to investigate and to check the veracity of our electoral process anymore with, with the type of electronic voting systems that are in place with companies like Diebold, uh, which, which ran the Ohio election. And, of course, they use kind of a version of Windows on their election machines, don't they? Uh, that's right, they do. And, in and fact, it was you can, shown several times that they can be hacked easily within a matter of minutes. That's right. Of course, anybody can hack Windows. You have to look at just the public information from Consumer Reports magazine, for example, said in the last two years alone, $9 billion has been lost by American industry because of Windows viruses. Wow. Well, and the, the irony of the 2004 election was that while we had our election here in the United States, Ukraine was having an election as well. And the Ukrainian election was certainly fraudulent. And Colin Powell, who was still Secretary of State, called them on it. And he said, well, your exit polls are in direct contradiction to your official results. Oh, boy. Therefore, we call your election into question and we don't we do not recognize them. Now, that was great that Colin Powell did that. And all the news media was all over Ukraine. And in fact, they did throw out that election. At the same time, we had the exact same situation here in the United States, and it got no press coverage other than a few uh, pieces by Keith Olbermann at MSNBC. That was it. 
and we had we had the same situation apply with Ohio, and not just Ohio, with a few other states. Now, is it is it a situation where the elites, uh, the Bilderbergers or the trilateralists, did this, or simply was it a really great plan by the Republican Party operatives? I don't know, but I do know that there's something that's very fishy about these elections. 2000 was fishy. 2004 was really really um, questionable, and I'm not a member of either political party. Uh, just to let people know, um, in fact, the last election I voted, I didn't vote for Skull or Bones. I voted for the Libertarian candidate, uh, Al Bednarik, who I know that was a, a supposedly throwaway vote, but I didn't want to vote for the Republican or Democratic parties. So it's true, of course, that President Kennedy was elected by lots and lots of dead people in Chicago. Since we're a paranormal Kennedy, show, I should point that out. Correct. Kennedy should, should never have won that election. That should have been won by Richard Nixon. Nixon had Kennedy beat, and we know with absolute let us say virtual certainty that Sam Giancana, who is based out of Chicago, is a mobster, basically handed Illinois to Kennedy. Uh, Nixon should have won that state. And had Nixon won Illinois, then, right, the Republicans would have won that election, as they should have done. Did he also kill Kennedy because of betrayal in the Bay of Pigs or somewhere else? Uh, Giancana, I don't, you know, his, he apparently said to his family, his younger brother, that, that he was involved. I I believe that uh, that Kennedy was killed in a probable CIA operation, pro possibly with help from organized crime, probably with help from organized crime. But I don't think that Giancana had the ability to stand down Secret Service or to destroy autopsy reports. And I think that there, are, when you look at the records of the House investigation from 1975 on the Kennedy assassination, when they reopened it, there's a lot of things that point to CIA as opposed to just uh, mafia. I think the CIA got um, a little ticked off over Bay of Pigs because that was their problem, not just the mafia. And then after uh, the, Bay, the standoff with Khrushchev over the missiles, I think what happened was that um, Kennedy wanted to shut down what was known as Operation Mongoose. This, we're going far afield from UFOs, but just as far it as I'm understanding... It seems to relate in a lot of ways, though, because it, we're it talking about does. government conspiracies. Yes. Secret government. Kennedy wanted Hoover, J. Edgar Hoover, the director of the FBI, to look into basically shut down this CIA Cuban operation out of Guatemala, Operation Mongoose. And Hoover apparently did confiscate some weapons. He couldn't arrest anyone. But I think as a result of that, they wanted to get Kennedy out of the way altogether. So I think what you had was CIA, Cuban, and some organized crime elements. Um, according to testimony to the House in the 70s, the best bet puts it, puts it as a CIA-Cuban effort to kill Kennedy. In fact, George Herbert Walker Bush was in Dallas and flew to Washington two days later to meet with Hoover. And there is a document that surfaced in 1987 when Bush was vice president that Hoover had made. Hoover had written this document talking about a meeting he had with George Bush of the CIA. And it was about the Kennedy assassination. We don't have the details of that meeting. When that memo surfaced at the time, Bush, who was vice president, said, must have been a different George Bush. Sure. To which the whole world said, just what you said, sure, okay. Oh, um, man. So, in other words, if, if it is our George Bush, and if he flew from Dallas to meet with Hoover, you've got to wonder why. What was going on here? Uh, I think what was going on, actually, is if you were CIA and you did kill Kennedy, one thing you'd want to know is who else knows and who else could compromise right. you. 
and Hoover was one, was one such man who might have compromised him if he had not been willing to play ball. And I believe that what probably happened is that George Bush flew to Washington to find out what Hoover's position was and would the CIA have to deal with Hoover. That's what I so, think happened. Stepping back from this whole topic for me, because this is fascinating. We can go down this route. Yeah, we're going all over the map here. The interview. But a theme that I see as fairly consistent here, guys, is that what appears to have happened in the history of this planet is that feudalism essentially became the dominating metaphor. We have what I suspect now is corporate feudalism, where essentially nationalist governments are less important than multinational corporations. It's, it's that scene from the movie Network where uh, Ned Beatty is explaining to Peter Finch how the world works. And it's all about the flow of money. And, you know, Rich, there's a, um, an essay on your website, Understanding UFOs and the Media, Puncturing a Myth, which yeah. I think should be required reading for media literacy classes at the college level because I think it's a very clear and very coherent description of the demographic structure of the media as it currently stands. The, the question I have for you is, at what point do you think the corporate feudalists say, hey, it's to our advantage to let more of the real information about what's really going on with UFOs out to the public, or is it a scenario where they will always keep this secret and basically try to productize or profitize as much of this as they can with no regard paid at all? I think most of you know that I love radio, and so I decide to look for the ultimate receiver for AM reception, because I want outstanding AM reception, day and night, especially night where it gets difficult. So I've discovered that C-Crane CC Radio Plus has earned the reputation of having the best AM reception, which is exactly what C-Crane intended when they designed this gem of a radio. Along with its legendary AM reception, it also has excellent FM reception, a weather band, TV audio and the ability to run on batteries for, and listen to this, 250 hours. So whether you use it as your bedside radio in your kitchen or at work, the CC Radio Plus will give you the pleasure of clear AM reception. The radio is designed for the clarity of the human voice and the benefits of useful features like five memory buttons per band. They work just like memory buttons in your car. A sleep timer. An alarm clock so you can get up at the right time, and a weather alert that now works as an all-hazards alarm. You know what I want you to do? I want you to buy that radio, but also support this show by visiting our site, theparacast.com. That's theparacast.com right now. Click on the C-Crane Sponsor button to order the CC Radio Plus for $164.95, and that includes free ground shipping and a free C-Crane catalog. Place your order today. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking to Richard Dolan. He's one of the four investigators at Sci-Fi Investigates, a new show on the Sci-Fi Channel Wednesday evening. Check your local listings for the time the broadcast will be seen in your area. And I'd like to remind everybody that if you want to send a comment or a question, send it to news at theparacast.com, news at theparacast.com, and check out our spirited and robust and active. <laughs> 
<laughs> message forums at theparacast.com. David, you want to finish that question or let Richard answer? I think you finished well, it, didn't you? Basically, yeah. Yeah. By the way, robust is very good, Gene. That's very good. Boy, you, re- you really read my articles carefully, David. Thank you so much. It's very gratifying. The thing about uh-huh. media is I would say that um, – Profit is, of course, always our number one consideration, always. Mm-hmm. And if, if UFO ratings are going to be good, they will find a way to get UFO programming out there. But the question is, how how is it done? There is a relationship between media and the U.S. intelligence community. We have seen this. It has been documented a number of times over the years. We don't know how deep it goes, but I suspect it goes pretty deep. Within media, however, there are always divergent groups. One thing that I, I have seen is that I can't speak of a monolithic media. I don't think that there is such a thing. There are always competing interests and views so that there are people who have positions of responsibility who are sympathetic to UFO openness. I've met some of these people. On the other hand, it's difficult for them. I've had uh, this summer when I was shooting the, the TV show, I, I had the privilege of getting to know some some very professional NBC producers, people who are friends with Tom Brokaw and the like. And one thing that they made clear to me was it's not that they're afraid of the UFO topic per se. They're afraid of what will happen to their reputation if they deal with UFOs in any kind of serious way in anything other than just like fun and games. And so it's very hard for them to try to find a way to deal with this topic without getting laughed at. And so they just stay away from it, which is why when I did uh, my kind of demographic analysis of the media, uh, one thing that I tried to argue is that I just don't see a way that the mainstream like NBC, ABC, CBS, that they will ever deal with UFOs in a truly serious, believing way. They'll leave that to the cable channels, which gives a kind of – I mean it's, it's a step removed from the true power – you know, the true power channels, I guess you could say. It's one thing if, if you watch a History Channel documentary that talks about the UFO reality. It's a totally different thing if you were to have a Tom Brokaw or, or Peter Jennings type of broadcast saying the same thing. Right. But, but the thing is, we're talking about the History Channel. The name of that channel is, self, is self-explanatory. It's not called the fictional History Channel. That's, that's correct. But it's also cable, which means it has much less smaller viewership. And it's also, uh, I mean, the History Channel, look, has done some very good programming. It's done some pretty uh, slick and, let's say, less than stellar programming. I mean, they're not immune. They're not an academic. I mean, you should just call them the World War II channels. Sometimes I feel so it's not like they are particularly elevated at all times in their programming either. They've done some good shows on UFOs. Uh, I've, I've been in a few that I I was not ashamed of having done. But it's the History Channel. It's, it's still different from NBC or even like the Jim Lehrer News Hour for that matter. So we're talking right? about ultimately the triumph of style over substance in pretty much certainly the political realities of this country. You know, something that we've talked about in the show, Rich, that I find fascinating is that an interest in paranormal topics like UFOs is considered fringy by many, but at the same time, any politician in this country who wants to have a chance of achieving office has to talk about the God myth as if it were reality. Yeah, um, not to even talk about one's religious beliefs. People believe different things, and but it's it's absolutely true that when you ask someone about their religious beliefs, they believe certain things because they were raised to believe it, not because they found evidence uh, for one reason or the other. In the case of the UFO phenomenon, 
it's a similar situation, but in fact, you might argue we have more evidence on our side in the sense that if you go through several hundred military documents that describe encounters by military personnel with unknown objects, I mean, that's pretty good evidence that something's going on, in my opinion. So yeah, a style over substance, maybe that's always been the case. It's certainly the yeah. case with, uh, with television today, no question about it. It's frustrating um, because it all becomes a branding exercise. And uh, yeah. it, it, to me, it's just at this point in scientific reality, and, and by the way, I actually believe in God, and that's what makes me so incredibly frustrated about this, that people can have these beliefs, and something, a, a tagline on the show here, Rich, is that we don't want to believe, we want to know what's going right. on. Belief, exactly. you can believe anything you want, right? Knowing Absolutely. and understanding, that, well, knowing and understanding takes effort. It seems like people are essentially lazy. Yeah, that's true. Uh, I also think that most people, once they hit the age 25, 30, basically stop learning and they, they spend their lives filling in the blanks of what they think they know. So mm. it's if you really want to have change over a course of time, I, I've come to feel that it's it's really not the individuals who are going to change, rather new generations come along and they just they have different perspectives. I've met very few people who, let's say, past the age of 30 or 40, who are actually willing to challenge a very fundamental belief. And in particular, yeah. it's almost like the more educated you are, the harder it is for you to change. If you've, if you've gone through a rigorously academic uh, training, you know, and then let's say you're 50 years old and you're some tenured professor or you're some experienced journalist or, you know, you're an executive somewhere. One of the things that you do is you take pride on, on being a little smarter than most people you know and being a little more knowledgeable than most people you know and having some idea of how the world works. So how likely is it that you, you would be willing at an age 50 to say, holy crap, I have missed one of the biggest fundamental truths my whole life and I've gone for decades without even understanding this. Yeah. That's a really hard thing for a grown person, a professional, to come to grips with. And I think that the real psychological version is so intense that they, they don't want to have to admit such a thing. I mean, don't you think that that's, that's going on? I think that's at the absolute core of it. it. It comes down to people wanting to protect their perceptions of reality and essentially the, the problem, of course, that the UFO topic is always dealt with, which is that People have a hard time, for some crazy reason, believing that life is possible off this planet. I mean, to look into the stars at night and to think, well, we're the only intelligent life in this universe. To me, that's the most ridiculous notion that a human can have, and yet it seems to be a prevailing method of thinking. Well, it's funny because even like 30 years ago, it was pretty common for astronomers to say that we're probably unique in the galaxy. Yeah. That there may not be life anywhere. Now, that's really, that's a passe argument. And you find most astronomers and cosmologists will say, well, there's probably a lot of life out there. They use the phrase, a universe teeming with life. So now that's a very different thing than two generations ago. And so now their argument is, well, it's, they're out there. This just It's impossible for them to get here because they're too far away. But then when you go to places like NASA and you go to other places where advanced work is being done and you ask them, is space travel possible? They may laugh and they'll say, oh, well, not really, probably for another century or so. All right? And this is actually a common belief. So in other words, they believe that, yes, we are actually, we're going to get there. Now, if we can admit that, 
how ridiculous is it to assume that someone else who's a, a few centuries ahead of us or a few thousand years ahead of us has already done it? Really, it's not that big a deal. No, no. One of my other interests uh, a little bit is artificial intelligence and the future of that. I, I'm not an expert, but I've read some books by some of the experts. I'm familiar with the issues. And if people think UFOs are whacked out, they should read some good books on the future of AI written by very mainstream people who get huge grants to, to do their work, unlike me. Their belief, the belief of many of them anyway, is that within 20 years or so, our computers will be telling us that they're conscious, sentient beings, and that we'll probably accept these claims. Uh, they'll, they'll sound like us, we'll have whole conversations with them, but they'll also be able to do a quadrillion number of calculations per second and pull any bit of information instantly off the internet. So they'll be like us, but a lot smarter. Now, if that's so, maybe not 20 years, maybe it's 50 years, whatever. How likely is it that we might be able to create an artificially intelligent machine to make it to the nearest star? I mean, I may not be able to survive a trip to Alpha Centauri, but can an artificially intelligent machine or artificially intelligent ship do it? Well, maybe we can download your intelligence like they do on some science Precisely. fiction stories. We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on the line. William, can you give us an offer for our readers about getting the magazine? Yes, I sure can. This is UFO Magazine, and I'm Bill Burns, the publisher, and here's an offer for your listeners. We have a special five-issue introductory offer for first-time subscribers, 1995 for your first five issues. Not available anywhere else, but on the Paracast. So, Bill, how do they place the order? People can place orders by going to www.ufomag.com. They can also place orders over the phone at 1-888-UFOMAGA. Or they can write to us at Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Bill, give us that contact information again. It is UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Or they can go directly to www.ufomag.com, and they can also call one 888 U-F-O-M-A-G-A, -A, and they can subscribe right over the phone with a credit card. This is The Paracast, with your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Bietti. You never know what's going to happen next. Hey, let me tell our listeners, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietany. If you have a comment or question, send it to newsatthepowercast.com. That's newsatthepowercast.com. Don't forget to visit our spirited, robust, and active... Dynamic. <laughs> dynamic. Dynamic, excuse me. <laughs> Message boards at thepowercast.com. Richard Dolan joins us. He's one of the four investigators at Sci-Fi Investigates, an all-new show on the Sci-Fi Channel. Check your local listings for more information. He has UFOs and the National Security State, Volume 1, 1941 to 1973, which tells me there's a Volume 2 in the offing. Is that correct? Yes, I, mean, I was working on it yet again all morning. I had originally, earlier this year, I had, I had hoped.
hoped that Volume 2 would be done around now. It isn't. Um, I'm working on it. It will, I suspect, be done early in 07. Um, it will be probably a little bit longer than the first book. I'm trying to keep it down to 600 pages, actually, and uh, even that's going to be a challenge. I've been, um, a couple of chapters are done. I've given them out to various readers who tell me they like it, but the way it looks right now is it's, it's kind of a long book. Um, it will take the story to the present day, so it'll go from the early 70s right till uh, the end of 2006, I assume. Well, looking at this, we're examining everything from kind of a USA-centric kind of view, but right. UFOs, crashes, everything, they're happening all over the world. So is there a world wide conspiracy or is each country acting on its own? Well, I think uh, the answer to that is what we were discussing earlier, which is the privatization of this. And what I think has happened is that this is a global phenomenon. It is a global, uh, let's call it a global cover-up. But not every government is on the exact same page as the United States. Uh, every now and then, another government will release certain types of information relevant to UFOs. Uh, Brazil has done so a few times. Mexico did something in 2004 when they released the, uh, the details of an event that their pilots had had with a UFO that year. Um, France has periodically said things, and, and other nations too. So, I mean, I try to, to ask myself, what does that mean when another government releases UFO data? Not sure. Is it, is it a, a case of blackmail against the U.S.? Like in the case of Brazil, I have wondered more than once, when Brazil talks about UFOs somewhat openly, are they trying to get access to some of the acquired technology that I think that the U.S. military industry has got? You know what I mean? If you don't hand some of this over, we'll, we'll just keep talking about it. I don't know if that's the case. I do think there's a global cover-up going on. Absolutely, yes. I'll tell you something, Rich. As far as Brazil is concerned, I have a theory about that. Um, I grew up in South America, and uh, that's a whole other topic. But in the case of Brazil, you have a country and a society that, if you look at the paranormal activity down there, across the board, whether it's UFOs or spiritual healing or, or incidents of uh, ghost episodes and hauntings, right. uh, it's really rather extreme. And the populace down there, for the most part, seems more open to discussing these things because of the fact that so many people have had personal experiences, such a large percentage of the population down there, that it's really not considered paranormal, it's considered another aspect of normalcy. Yes, I understand that. I think that that does factor into it. Uh, but also it's the case that the Brazilian military, which I'm, I would think is a little more in line with, say, um, like the U.S. military. I mean, they're, they work with the U.S. military in a number of, mm -hmm. a number of things. When the Brazilian military makes a statement like that, I still have to sit up and take notice. But all I can do is, is really wonder, what does it mean? I think that when, when an object goes down, I've been looking a lot into possible crash retrievals over the last 20, 30 years, and a number have occurred in, in South America. And what seems to be the case, according to um, at least some of the information that I'm getting, is that the U.S. really dominates most of these retrieval operations. So that 
something may go down in some part of the world, but the U.S. military is there. And when you look at the size of the U.S. military compared with that of other nations, I mean, it just dwarfs them all. Yeah, yeah. So that's really not much of a surprise. But for the record, my next book will have a very international scope to it. It will still focus primarily on the U.S. components of it, but certainly every year that's covered is going to have an international component to it as well. And in many, in many cases, um, the non-American you know, aspects are going to be much more prominent than the American aspects, depending on like 1989, 1990, for example, there was uh, a lot going on in Europe and in the Soviet Union, much less in the United States as far as UFO activity. Right. So I, I'm really trying to follow military activity of all nations at this point a little more internationally than in the first book. Because it's a global thing. It's not just yeah, America. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, in, in the 90s, Mexico City, we probably have one of the most significant modern UFO flaps with a tremendous amount of visual and video evidence, though, of course, discussion of video and, and still image evidence is another very complicated topic, one we've dealt with on the Paracast before, and we're at the point now where it's my personal belief that given the state of the sophistication of technology, at this point, any kind of video or still image photographic evidence of any kind of anything should not be acceptable as proof of anything, even in a court of law. It's just we're beyond that now. Probably. However, I, I, have, I have one problem with that approach, which is that, yes, like a digital image can be manipulated. We, we all know this. Right. On the other hand, people around the world, who uses film anymore? No one does. People use digital cameras. Sure. There are digital images. You can do a web search on this. I've done many. I'm sure you have. Around the world, there are hundreds of digital photographs published every year now. Hundreds uh, depicting alleged UFOs. Now, a lot of these have a lot in common. I've, I've really tried to study these images. And I have to tell you, I have a hard time accepting all of these as as fabricated. I have a hard time accepting most of them as fabricated. Now, that doesn't mean that when you t look at each one individually that it passes the bar of evidence that you can call it proof. I agree with you that it doesn't. On the other hand, I'm uncomfortable dismissing the mass of digital uh, photographic evidence where, for example, like there's a very, there's certain very typical kinds of objects that are apparently being captured. I myself photographed what I think is a UFO back in 2004. I'm thinking of including the picture in my book, and I didn't, I didn't see it when I first photographed it, which is so typical. People use their digital cameras; they take hundreds of pictures now. Whereas in the past, when you paid for film, you didn't take that many. Now we do, and so click, 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 click. It's going on all over the place, and people are are now noticing. Only when they look at their image on a nice large computer screen, then they say, oh, what's, what's that thing over there? And there's a lot of similarity in these images. There's a couple of images taken just weeks apart from Australia from early 2004 that show uh, one was taken by an, a, a municipal employee. He was a highway inspector. He had to take a shot of a, of a particular intersection by a railroad. And in the top right, there's this fuzzy but very distinct a uh, flying saucer type of image. Now, there's no reason to think that this guy faked it. A few weeks later, there is another almost identical type of image taken by a different person in a different part of that country, like a thousand miles away. Right. And, and you get a lot of these. So, yes, they don't pass the, the standard of absolute proof 
On the other hand, it is possible to analyze a digital image. There are sophisticated people who can at least do some analysis of these. So I'm, I'm hesitant to say, let's throw out all video, all, all photographic imagery, because it's so easy to hoax. I mean, we have to be vigilant in, in studying these. Sure. No, uh, and, okay. Well, let sorry. me amplify. No, no, that's okay. Let me amplify yeah. the thought here, because what I'm basically saying, Rich, is that visual evidence, video or still photographic images, without a significant amount of witness testimony, are very problematic. Now, it's interesting you brought up Australia, because in 2006, this year, there was something that happened on the web, and of course, the internet has thrown a whole other uh, uh, angle on this whole thing. But there was a series of video clips of UFOs that were put up, and this was purportedly supposed to be a genuine event where uh, people have been supposedly capturing on video a variety of different types of ships. Um, the video, in most cases, looked astounding. Um, it turned out this whole thing was essentially a hoax put out by this uh, director, Christopher Kenworthy. I don't know if you're aware of this or not. It's I heard of this. Yeah, yeah you, you want to know about this. The reason I bring all this up, and again, I, I'm with you on this point. I think that we can't throw out the whole bulk of it, but basically what we have to do is realize that at this point in time, technologically, there is no type of image that cannot be fabricated if one has the time and the motive to do it. That, that's the important point that I want to I make. think your point is very well taken, David. And we have to stop it there. Thank you very much. Richard Dolan, he's an historian, researcher, author, lecturer, man about town. Can we add that to it? Sure, man. Okay, and he's one of the four <laughs> investigators at Sci-Fi Investigates, broadcast Wednesdays on the Sci-Fi Channel. Check your local listings, author of UFOs in the National Security State, we have a link over at theparacast.com, by the way, to Rich's website, keyholepublishing.com. That's keyholepublishing.com, so you can learn more about what he does and read many of his fascinating writings. Rich, this is just the first time we want you back again. Absolutely. Again, thanks. Oh, for, I had a great time. Thanks for joining us on the Paracast. I'll do it again. Let's let's hook up again. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in the Paracast.